Welcome. I am, uh, for the sake of the podcast, should anybody ever listen to this in the future, as they unearth this 500 years hence in uh, a Geniza found in a little room storehouse buried underneath an ancient synagogue in Egypt, which is where the Geniza was, and they listened to this from the past. I am Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin, the Rabbi Emeritus of Kehillat Israel, Reconstructionist Congregation of Pacific Palisades, which you should know if you're listening to this podcast, because that's where you have to go in order to listen to it anyway. And uh, this is uh, part one of a multi-part, I think four, I can't remember, um, series about wisdom. Boy, do we need it now. Wisdom. So, and um, in this case, wisdom found in this collection called Perkei Avot, this collection, here's a couple of examples of it, you can't see it if you're listening, but here it is, um, otherwise known as uh, ethics of our sages, Avot is, um, for those Hebrew scholars in the room, Avot literally means uh, fathers, but in Hebrew, it's, it's also used as um, ancestors, uh, a category. It's also used as a category, um, a term for categories of things. And in this case, as you'll discover, if you stick around long enough, um, it's a category of wisdom literature uh, that is found in rabbinic literature. So let me uh, begin, before we elucidate the wisdom of Pirkei Avot, by having everybody think about <clears throat> when you were growing up, wherever you grew up, um, think of some, I don't know, proverb or saying that uh, you were taught, you know, that like wisdom passed down by a parent or a grandparent, you know, always remember to this or always remember that. If you were going to think of some pithy proverb, proverbial saying, what would it be? It's okay if you're a garbage man as long as you have good character. It's okay if you're a garbage man as long as you have good character. I like that. <clears throat> okay, what else? Yeah. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Yes, Bert. I've been sick and poor and rich and healthy, and believe me, rich and healthy is better. (laughs) I've been sick and poor and rich and healthy, and believe me, rich and healthy is better. Yes. Whatever you're going to be, be the best. Whatever you're going to be, be the best. Waste not, want not, there are children starving in China. Waste not, want not, there are children starving in China. Yeah, they were starving in China when I was a kid, too. I don't know why China, but... And they, yes, and they were desperate for the uh, broccoli on my plate. I don't want the broccoli. Send Let's send it to China. China, yes. A couple others. What other? Any other words of wisdom? Yeah. I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. Yes. Uh, did you have your hand up? Okay, I'm calling on you then. There's a cover for every pot. There's a cover for every pot. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. Don't borrow trouble in advance of need. Is that what I mean? Don't borrow trouble. Look at all these wonderful, wise sayings. I was doing a parenting workshop once and asked uh, the parents who were there <coughs> to share with me sort of advice that their, their parents had taught them. And one woman in this really large group, hundreds of people in this this audience, she said, my mother taught me never run after a man or a bus. There'll always be another one coming. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> but of all the parenting things I did, that one always stuck in my mind. So go, go now. Okay, so that's what this is about. Or this. Or this. Pirkei Avot. It is, unlike any other section of the Talmud, unlike any other section of the Mishnah, which I'll... Explain in a moment for those who don't know that that is the foundation of the Talmud, in that it is simply a whole bunch of these things that we've been sharing. It is a collection of <clears throat> proverbs and pithy sayings and wise sayings and words of advice, uh, not legal words of advice, unlike the rest of the Talmud, which has lots and lots of legal opinions and discussions. Um, it is uh, purely about how to be the best person in the world, how to be the right kind of person. And many prayer books, I guess not Kol Shema, but many prayer books, um, because this is uh, this slim little section of the of the Talmud was um, so often read and studied. Uh, by individuals in the community uh, as a source of wisdom and a, a tradition emerged during the time between Passover and Shavuot in the spring to read in synagogues uh, a chapter of, uh, of Pirkei Avot every week. So many traditional prayer books would actually include the, the entire Pirkei Avot, the entire book in their prayer book, in the front of the prayer book or in the back of the prayer book as, as a reference. <coughs> so that when people were in services and bored, they would have <coughs> something more interesting to read than <coughs> whatever the same prayers are that they read all the time. So, um, a couple things. <coughs> Pirkei Avot uh, is, as I said, a, a part of the Mishnah. Mishnah is from the Hebrew word shaneh, which really means to to uh, repeat, um, as in to repeat one something that one has learned from someone else. Uh, the um, the Torah, as we all know, when when someone speaks about the Torah, they may mean many things. You can't see it because I covered it up, but they may mean, and initially they meant that scroll that's in the ark with the five books of Moses. People refer to the Torah in its narrow sense. That's the Torah. Of course, in Jewish tradition, Torah with a capital T became, actually capital Toph, I guess it's Hebrew, but a capital T uh, became a code word for all of Jewish learning. Torah, we learn Torah. Talmud, Torah, Kaneged Kulam, it says somewhere in the Talmud. The study of Torah is, is uh, equivalent to anything, to everything. It's like, but they didn't mean just the five books of Moses. They meant sort of all of Jewish wisdom and literature and everything that's that's uh, that grew out of the rabbinic mind over centuries. <clears throat> so the Torah, however, was, and the Bible, we don't have any Bibles, we just have Torahs in here, 
with all of the books of the Bible beyond the Torah, the prophets and the writings, <coughs> Psalms and all those things that go into Bibles, those <coughs> were eventually fixed canonized is the technical term in religious language, canonized and fixed as being the Bible, right? At some point, somebody said, this is in and this is out. I mean, where did those books come from? After all, the books of Job and the books of Psalms and Esther and all those things that are in the the Bible, somebody collected them all together at one point. Somebody or some group, depends on who you read, who you decide was actually the editor of the Bible, but somebody was the, obviously the editor of the Bible, because at one point it stopped. <laughs> you know, they were adding all these books and adding all these prophets and adding all this different kinds of literature and ecclesiastic and so all these things, Proverbs, and at one point someone said, okay, that's it, it's done. You know, it's cooked, it's done, it's now the, the official sacred Bible, and any other books that may be floating around out there are not a part of the Bible. Uh, and there are other books floating, and there always were other books floating around out there. Well, the Bible may have stopped, just like the Torah stopped with the five books of Moses, and then we added more of them. The Bible may have stopped, but learning and studying and history didn't stop. And arguing, because Jews argue all the time, about what's right and what's wrong and how you should live and how you should do that, that never stopped. And so, <clears throat> around um, the time of let's see, 586 BCE, when the Babylonian exile took place. You didn't know this was going to be a Hebrew lesson, a history lesson. The, the first exile happened from uh, to Babylonia in about 586 BCE, before the Common Era. In that biblical period, where did worship, how did we worship? We didn't have prayer books yet. So what did worship look like? Sacrifice. We had the temple. We had priests. Well, not me. We had priests, not rabbis. We had priests and we had animal sacrifices and all that. And, and look, there were some local shrines where you could do local sacrifices. But basically it's the three pilgrimage festivals. Everybody would show up on, on Sukkot and on Pesach and Shavuot and from all over Israel. And they would go to Jerusalem because that was the big deal. That was the big, the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the priests hung out. And when you wanted to offer, you know, prayers of thanksgiving or you wanted to pray for something or whatever, you'd bring an offering, a sacrifice, give it to the priest. They would, if it was an animal, they would chop it up and do whatever they did and burn it and some of it and some of it would get back to you, sanctify it. And this is how, this is what worship was, so to speak, in those days. Well, <clears throat> what happens when you no longer have a big temple around you? Well, <coughs> excuse me, they had a temple in, let's say, after the first, during the first Babylonian exile, that meant they were exiled to Babylonia. People were, you know, taken up by Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered Israel and took all these people, thousands of them, into captivity. They were no longer hanging out where priests in Jerusalem was. So what did they do? That was the beginning of synagogues. They started, they would gather each week, wherever they were, and they would share their history or share their wisdom literature. And in fact, probably... The Bible became the Bible because they they weren't near Jerusalem where the priests were, and they needed something to hold them together. And so they said, here's our sacred literature, and they started teaching it. And so synagogue sort of emerged because there was no other alternative in these uh, external communities. And even when, even though the temple was still there, the temple wasn't destroyed yet, after all, till 70, when the Romans came in and 
destroyed it all. Such a long time, hundreds of years. So then they came back from the exile, then they were there again, and then there was another exile after 70, and when the temple was destroyed. Then, when the te- by, But by the time the temple was destroyed, there already had been the sort of beginnings of synagogue life and local communities that were studying things. So the rabbis, the sages that we call sages, all these names of rabbis in the Talmud and in traditional Jewish literature, those were people that emerged when there were no longer priests who held the position as the purveyors of Jewish wisdom uh, and the clerics and the clergy were priests. After 70, when there was no longer temple, there was no longer any priests at all. And so for Judaism was either going to disappear altogether or something new had to emerge. The something new that emerged was we started having rabbis, teachers, get together, sages, and try to figure out how do we make that Torah relevant in whatever the current age was. For example, in the Torah, we all know, there's these laws, rules about Shabbat, right? They're, they're kind of simple rules. They say, don't do anything. <laughs> the rule of Shabbat is, don't violate the Shabbat. What does that mean? According to the Torah, don't work. It says, don't work on Shabbat. That seems fairly straightforward. Don't work on Shabbat. Unless you ask the question, well, what constitutes work? You know, does that mean, you know, honey, don't make me any uh, breakfast this morning because you can't work on Shabbat or whoever the honey happens to be? I guess in the new world, honey is always going to be a woman. Um, anyway, the, you know, so what, what constitutes work? How do you determine what's work and what would be therefore violating the Sabbath? Well, there's a few hints maybe in the Torah. There is one section where someone was gathering sticks up in the, in, on Shabbat to build a fire and do whatever and, you know, everybody went crazy and they killed him for it because he was violating the Shabbat. But the rabbis in a later era had to say, well, I don't know what constitutes work. What they decided to do was, not in the Torah, in their minds, they said, well, it does say in the Torah, in the book of Shemot, in the book of Exodus, there's this whole long section where they talk about all this incredibly detailed architectural uh, uh, rules about how to build the sanctuary. You know, it's like page after page, chapter after chapter of every, incredible details in the in the Torah about the hooks and the and the curtains and all the stuff. How you're supposed to what you're supposed to do to build the sanctuary that was then the, what's called in Hebrew the Mishkan, the tabernacle <clears throat> in the wilderness, and by the way, you were supposed to do to build this sacred space for God. So the rabbi said, "Well, let's just take the all of the." the descriptions of how, what you have to do, what they were commanded to do in order to build that, and we'll extract from that, we'll sort of <clears throat> reverse engineer from those instructions all of the activities that would have to go on for them to build that and say that's work. Sewing, hammering, you know, whatever, all the things that would go into if you wanted to build this building, what would it take? You know, drawing thing, all these things, and then some other stuff. So they came up with 39 categories of work. And there's this long list of all these things you can't do on Shabbat, which is why if you're Orthodox, you can't do anything on Shabbat, because there's all these long lists of everything that constitutes working on Shabbat. Lighting fires, and then of course, as you know, probably thinking about it, since there was a clear prohibition against lighting fires on Shabbat, when you get to the modern world, 
The question is, well, you know, can I push the button to have the elevator go up? You know, can I turn on my car? Why can't I drive on Shabbat? Because, of course, no, I don't know, do electric cars do you can't, you can't drive on Shabbat because the rabbis, modern rabbis, when cars got invented, said, because in order to start the car, you turn the key, and what happens? You turn on a fire, right? <coughs> Spark goes out. So obviously you can't turn on a car because you'd be violating the rule against lighting a fire on Shabbat. So you can't push a button to yourself to initiate an elevator for, I guess, the same reason. You know, so if you go to um, Cedar sinai Hospital, you know, uh, on Shabbat, you don't have to push any buttons. They have Shabbat elevators. And if you're in an Orthodox building, they have Shabbat elevators. A Shabbat elevator just automatically stops on every floor and goes up and down every floor. You don't have to do anything. You just wait and you get in, you know, and then you get out. You don't have to violate the Sabbath by doing anything, right? So, just saying, I'm not suggesting it, just saying. So, but there are all ways of trying to, you know, live in accordance with these rules. These rules were made up by somebody. You know, the somebody are a whole bunch of rabbis over hundreds and hundreds of years. So <clears throat> what happened was, you may have heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Some of you know much better than I the details of history. But what emerged was the Pharisees are the rabbis of the Talmud. And the, the Sadducees were that group of rabbinic leaders who said the Torah is sacrosanct and we shouldn't add anything to it. It just take it as it is, essentially. And the Pharisees are what modern rabbis would be. They're people who make it up on their own and say, well, how can I make this relevant to living in 2016 or 2020 or 20, whatever it happens to be in every generation? Pharisees said, no, no, it's like, that's nice. That's where we start. But how does, how do we supposed to know how to live today when we no longer live in an agrarian society? You know, it's like tzedakah. One of the most famous ideas is there's a, commandment in the Torah that most of you have heard before that says when you, when it's harvest time, when you're supposed to harvest your field, you're supposed to leave, you know, a corner of your field unharvested, right? Famous thing, peah is the name of a corner in Hebrew. The law of peah, you're supposed to leave a corner of your field unharvested. Why? Why do you leave it unharvested? For the poor. You leave it unharvested so those who don't have their own fields, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, that's the normal categories of the poorest, the most vulnerable in society, those who are poor, those who are strangers, those who are widows, those who are orphans, can go get food. You leave it, it's for them. That's very nice. How many people here have fields? (laughs) So if you don't have a field... That means you're free. That's it. I'm exempt. I don't have to take care of the poor. When we all move into the cities, the poor are screwed. That's it. Because, you know, we don't have, I'm a tailor. That doesn't, I don't, what am I supposed to do? So somebody needed to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What was the principle behind leaving that corner of the field? Right? What was the principle? What was the idea? It wasn't literally about the corner. It wasn't about the crop. It was about the poor. So if it was about the poor, then in whatever modern world and modern situation you're in, how can you translate the idea of the corner of the paya into modern life? So we do what we do, obviously, all of us. You know, and we have KI's, you know, annual high holiday food drive and we collect 186,000 pounds of food or whatever we did that are going to make, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of meals for people. Okay. And none of us have fields. 
but we manage to fulfill that mitzvah in that way. Or <clears throat> we start creating social service agencies and on and on and on. Pharisees <clears throat> were that group of rabbis who emerged out of the the ashes, literally, of the second of the destruction of the temple, and said, "What do we do now? You know, if our whole basis of religion is based on animal sacrifice and going to the temple, and the temple's gone, I guess we're over. We're either over, or we create a new version of who we are. And the new version of who we were, and who we've been ever since, really, for the last two thousand years, is rabbis as teachers helping to, in their own way, come up with how you can make take the ideas of the Torah relevant to whatever the modern world is. So, this this conversation about how do you make these things relevant took place in gatherings of rabbis that became seminaries, that became uh, houses of study for sages, many of whom also had day jobs, and this wasn't their full-time job. They, they were day jobs doing something, but then they got together to wrestle with these important issues. And they did all of this like as if we were going to have a conversation and I were to stop talking, all, only just me, and had you get involved. That's oral conversation. They did that for a long time, you know. And then people started thinking... How are we going to remember all this stuff? You know, we make decisions, we get together as a group, we vote on it, which is what they did. Should this be the way we do something, or should that be the way we do something, or should we agree on this, or should we agree on that? And when they would agree, someone would take note of it, and they would teach it orally, because it used to be everyone passed everything down orally from one generation to the next. And finally, a rabbi named Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, decided, if I don't write all this stuff down, we're going to forget it. He was a man after my own heart, since I write down everything, because I know I'm going to forget it. So he eventually wrote everything down. He collected 500 years' worth of conversations and wrote them down. That writing all of them down, he wrote them down in six different groupings, orders, sections, that together is what's called the Mishnah. Those six sections are, I'm going to now tell you, just for the fun of it, they were in Hebrew, they were called zeraim, which means seed, so he, which meant all the laws concerning land, cultivation, duty of landowners, and things like that, donations, and things to priests, even though they didn't have priests, because they kept the idea of them alive. Uh, Moed, which is about, means holidays, so everything related to holidays is one section. Um, nashim, which means women. Everything concerning marriage and divorce and family life, collected those, a whole section of that. Uh, Nizikin, which means damages, that was sort of the civil legal issues that they had. Civil and criminal laws, regulations relating to damages and accidents and penalties, that collected all those together in one group. Uh, two more. Kodeshim, which meant sacred things, which really, in their rabbinic parlance, meant sacrifices and dietary observances. And taharot, which means cleanliness, but they meant spiritual cleanliness. How do you keep yourself spiritually clean and also personal cleanliness? Rules about how you should wash your hands before you eat and things like that as a and blessings and things like that that they started creating, started inventing blessings. Because after all, we don't have sacrifices anymore. Now we do this. 
We come together, we worship with words. And the words take the place of the sacrifices. In fact, if you go to High Holidays, any place but with us, you, um, it, or in more traditional settings, there's a whole section of Yom Kippur that's all about elucidating the, sacri- the laws of the sacrifices. We don't do it because we don't really feel like they connect to people very much. But they, with, it's a tradition in more traditional synagogues. They read about all these sacrifices, which is in place of doing the sacrifices. You read about them, you know. So we started inventing prayers. Prayers didn't come out of nowhere, too. They didn't fall from heaven, like these rules didn't fall from heaven. Rabbis made them up. You know, they made up a prayer. Somebody decided, this is water, but let's pretend it's wine. Someone decided, well, this means mm, sweetness, joy. And we should say a blessing over this. Where did that come from? Somebody made it up. This made up a formula for how you should bless. You should bless with Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which literally means blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, and then put an ending on it, right? Hamotzi Lechamina Arts, you're blessing bread, Borei Priyagafen, you're blessing wine. You know, they created these formulas that then caught on, that they then used for every aspect of life. You know, they took the place of sacrifices, but rabbis made those up. Somebody needed to make them up. And the power of those rituals that they made up were to hold a community together. You know, the power of ritual, the power of, I don't know what rituals you guys have in your own homes. I know for myself, I grew up in Santa Monica, many of you know, going to a reform synagogue. It's still sort of there. Um, on 19th in California, it was best shalom at the time. Um, and... Um, my family's ritual was Friday night, 6 o'clock, I was sitting at the dinner table. Every Friday night, 6 o'clock, no matter what was going on in my life, I was in marching bands, I was in all kinds of things, 6 o'clock, I was sitting at the dinner table in my house for Shabbat dinner, as were my three sisters. That was what we did, and we did Blessings over this and blessings over that and, you know, the normal Shabbat blessings, at least wine and candles and my mother lit candles and my father did the blessing over the wine and whatever. And that, that ritual became something that was like an anchor for me in my life. With all the other insecurities of life, there was something I knew I could count on all the time, Friday night, six o'clock, being at home and having that. And that is the point of ritual. The point of ritual is exactly that. It's to anchor us. It's things that you do like, and we all have rituals. We create our own rituals of how we go to bed at night, how we get up in the morning, things we do regularly. If you look at your own life, you know, the certain things you do in certain orders all the time because it gives you an emotional sense of security. You know, something you can count on in the world, which is your own ritualistic choices that you've made. This is how I do this. This is how I do that. And as a people, if you if you collectively are doing the same thing, it holds, connects you as a people, holds you together. Uh, so the rabbis made up rituals, customs, traditions. You know, it's like I do weddings all the time, funerals, do weddings, and people will come in and go, well, of course, we have to do this. We have to do that because that's what Jewish tradition says. And it's always fun when they come from different backgrounds because then their parents are telling them, no, no, you have to do that, you know, or you have to do that. Or when when... People 
uh, get married, and uh, they're both Jews, and they come from different Jewish families, and one will say, well, on Passover, we always had this, and the other will say, well, yeah, in my family in Passover, we always had that, you know, and we always dipped this, and we always dipped that, and we, and that, that's, you know, that's the right way to do it, and everybody has the right way of doing whatever, because the right way to do it is however you did it. My, uh, I have this great memory of, God, I... No wonder I became a rabbi. I have this I have this great memory as a child, child maybe ten, maybe ten, I don't know, something like that, going to the rabbi in my congregation to ask a, a uh, in Santa Monica with my best friend at the time, Jimmy, because we were arguing over something and we went to the rabbi to resolve our argument. <clears throat> but it was a Jewish religious argument. The argument was that... Uh, in Jimmy's family, on Passover, they were forbidden to eat bread. Bread was, um, you know, it wasn't kosher for Passover. It was chametz. You don't eat chametz on Passover. So in my family, what was forbidden on Passover was bread, sodas, ice cream, <laughs> cookies. <laughs> you know, because that, so as far as I was concerned... You can't eat drink soda, you know, Coke on Passover. You can't eat ice cream on Passover. You can't eat bread. You can't, because those were my family rules. Because my mother was the rabbi of our house. So, and that was my mother's rules to this day, I think. You know, my mother has her own, like, rules that she makes up. And, and that's the rule. So, Jimmy and I would argue, no, no, no. He'd say, you can eat that. That isn't, like, not kosher for Passover. And I would say, yes, it's not kosher for Passover. We argue back and forth, and then we literally went to the rabbi. <clears throat> a blessed memory. Went to the rabbi and said, you know, who's right? <laughs> of course, he was such a good rabbi. <laughs> he said, you're both right. <laughs> yeah. He said the obvious. He said, your mother's rules are your rules in your house. That's what's kosher and not kosher in your house. Your mother's rules are what's right and wrong in your house. That's what's kosher and what's not. So, and that's the way, that's the way the real world works, right? So, so here's the thing. Uh, so as I said, the Mishnah was compiled, all these oral laws, all these oral rules were compiled by this wonderful rabbi, Judah the Prince, um, in the, over the first two decades of the second century of the Common Era. And it represents, as I mentioned, material over gathered over 500 years from about the year 400 BCE, Ezra the scribe, who probably was the editor of the Bible, by the way, uh, to the early rabbinic sages of his time. Um, this guy, this rabbi, Judah, Judah the prince, was the president of the Sanhedrin, which was the rabbinic court, the name for the rabbinic court. He was the president. And um, after the Mishnah was compiled, it became the text over which for then, for the next several hundred years, the subsequent rabbis would argue about. And they would take the Mishnah that he had compiled, they would discuss it, they would argue about it, they would come up with their own decisions, they would write all those things down, their arguments pro and cons. One of the great reasons why there's 20 volumes of Talmud is because they would include arguments on both sides. You didn't just have conclusions, you would have the discussions recorded. How they did that, I don't even know, but they did. They would record the discussions that they had. So there was minority opinions and majority opinions, and you would have it all. They collected it all, and eventually all of that, 
the Mishnah and all of the conversations, which became called the Gemara, is what the Talmud is. So the Talmud is that collection of the Mishnah that Judah the Prince put together, and then several hundred years up to about the year 500 of conversations about those things. Interesting. I know you, some of you are asleep already, but, <clears throat> and arguments, right? A vote, this section, this little tractate, a vote, is found, weirdly enough, in the section called Damages, although I don't know why he put it there. And it's the only tractate with no commentary. It's the only section of the Talmud that has no extraneous conversation or commentary. It stands alone. Six chapters, but it was really originally five, and then they added another one. Five chapters, really, that mattered. And no amplifications whatsoever, and no legal content. It's the only one in the whole Talmud that has no, for the lawyers here, no legal content. It's just a compendium of sayings dealing with how to best live your life, which we're about to read if I stop with the introduction. But <clears throat> one other thing. Say something about the sages that you're going to meet in a moment on that, oh, yours is blue, right? On the blue sheet in a moment. Those sages, the sages of the, of the, of Pirkei Avot, then span um, several hundred years. And they represent um, a collection of couples, in Hebrew it's called zugot, literally couples, pairs, who are the leaders of the Sanhedrin over several generations, five generations worth. So you'll end up seeing this person and this person that'll say received the tradition from their elders, and then you'll have little sayings from each of those. Those two pairs, or zugot that we call them in Hebrew, were the president and vice president of the Sanhedrin. That's who these people were. They were the president and the vice president. In, in Hebrew, the president's called the nasi, or prince, really, and the vice president was called Av Beitin, which literally means the father of the Beitin, which is the court, father of the court. But that was the vice president. So those two people, who were the most prestigious and important people in the Sanhedrin, by the way, the Sanhedrin, the council, rabbinic council, had 71 people in it, 71 rabbis. It's like a big deal. 71 rabbis in Jerusalem. That when you had important decisions, you would go to the Sanhedrin. They literally were the legal uh, deciders. And then there was the, there was the Sanhedrin <clears throat> Gadol. That's the big Sanhedrin. That's with my throat. Then there were little ones, <clears throat> little Sanhedrins in loc- locales around Israel that had 23 people in it, 23 rabbis in it. You could go for local issues to them. Big issues you'd go to the to Jerusalem for. So here are these, just give you a sense, and then we'll meet them. <clears throat> these five couples, these five pairs. Yossi ben Yoezer, they're all Hebrew names. Yossi ben Yoezer and Yossi ben Yochanan happened to be both Yossis. They were prior to about 160 BCE, just to give you a framework. Then Yoshua ben Prachia and Nittai of Arbel, who were like around 130 BCE. And then Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shetach. I'll tell you more about them. They're interesting guys from about 100 to 175 BCE, and then Shemaiah and Avtalion in the first century BCE, and then the famous Hillel and Shammai that most people have heard of, because everybody's heard of Hillel, um, and Shammai, because they were like the quintessential arguers about everything, you know, Hillel and Shammai. Let's see, what's the most famous Hillel and Shammai? The most famous Hillel and Shammai disagreement 
is the Hanukkah disagreement, probably. That's one of them, anyway. One of the most famous Hillel and Shammai disagreements is about Hanukkah. Um, he, Hillel was the, the Nasi and Shammai was the Av Beitin. They, they had two different schools of thought, always opposed to each other, always arguing. The Hillel for the, 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 the Hanukkah discussion was, there's how many nights of Hanukkah? Pop quiz. Eight. Eight nights of Hanukkah. So, and the, what commandment is to, you're supposed to light a light for each night of Hanukkah. So the discussion was, should you start with eight lights? Because you have eight lights the first night, because you have eight nights left, and have seven lights the second night, six night lights the sixth, I can't even say this quickly, six lights, five, four, three, two, one, as the days diminish of Hanukkah, or should you start with one, and then add two, and then add three, and then add four, and ultimately, on the eighth night, have all eight. So, Shammai said, you have eight, the first day you have eight days of the holiday left, you should start with eight. And then you only have seven left, you should light seven candles, and you should six, and five, four, three, two, one. Hillel said, you should start with one, then you should add two, then you should add three. Obviously, everybody knows who won, because everybody starts with one, and then goes two, and then goes three, and then goes four. So Hillel won, which is not a surprise, because Hillel always wins. So every time there's an argument between Hillel and Shammai, Hillel always wins, just the way it worked. Hillel was the... Hertz and Shammai was Avis. So that's just the way he tried hard, but it was, wasn't quite, didn't make it. So, um, and we'll hear in just a moment about Hillel and Shammai anyway. But so that, so they had this disagreement. And, but, you know, it wasn't just that they would, the wisdom and the beauty of the Talmud and of these rabbinic conversations was, it wasn't just, okay, let's have a vote, all in favor, say aye, boom, done. There had to be a reason. There had to be some, you know, the majority goes with Hillel because, and then there has to be something that's meaningful. Because even though so much of the Talmud is what some of us would refer to as, not in a negative sense, legalistic material, it was all about the quality of life and character and what matters in life and how to bring holiness into the world. So, for example, in that little dispute, the rabbis collectively agreed with Hillel because they said that light is a symbol of holiness and you never want to diminish holiness. You always want to increase holiness. So you start with one, you add two, you add three, and by the end of the holiday, you have all eight lit, nine, because you have a shamus there, and you have increased holiness and brought more holiness into the world. So that becomes then a principle that you can apply in many, many other circumstances of your life. You don't diminish holiness. You just have to identify what it is and and find ways of increasing and bringing holiness into the world. That was a sort of a one of the fundamental principles of rabbinic life that they then applied to this otherwise weird question of should you start with one or should you start with eight candles? Like as if who cares? You know, but they, bless you, they made it care because that's how they interpreted what it meant. So, having said, anything else I want to say? Nah, that was enough. Um, turn to the Talmud. Uh, the Mishnah, also the Talmud, because it's also in the Talmud. And, <clears throat> turn to the Talmud. Here's your Talmud. Thank you. You're welcome. 
kind of a thin Talmud today, but... So, this is chapter one, chapter one of Pirkei Avot, of your Talmud study for tonight. Chapter one, Mishnah one, that's what it's called, one where it says one, one. This one statement is the entire basis of the legitimacy of the rabbis to do everything they did since the temple was destroyed. After all, who died and appointed them to be in charge of all of Jewish life, right? Who said they get to be the authoritative speakers and deciders of how we should live and how we shouldn't live? Who said they did? (laughs) Of course they did. They said, I'm anointing myself, right? They said, and the way they did it was exactly how this book this collection of sayings, Pirkei Avot, sayings of the fathers, the wisdom of the ancestors, begins. They traced their sense of authority and credibility to who? Moses. Who else? Because Moses was the lawgiver. Everybody recognized that the Torah is the authoritative Law of Torah Moshe. It's the law of Moses. The word of Moses that, according to Jewish tradition, was literally dictated by God to Moses. You can't get more authoritative than that, right? God said these words to Moses. That's what the Torah keeps saying. And God spoke to Moses saying, it's, you know, every other line in the Torah says that, right? So, so they wrote the following. Moses received the Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua was the person, of course, who fought the Battle of Jericho, who he handed it to. And Joshua to the elders, the elders at the time, the, the, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the sages of the great assembly. That's them. <laughs> the Sanhedrin. The sages of the great assembly said three things. You'll find that a lot throughout the Perkei Avot. Lots of threes. In fact, if I had my guitar, I probably should have started singing Al Shlosha Devarim, which is on three, because that comes from Perkei Avot. The world is founded on three things. Why do you find so many the world is founded on three things? Do you think? Why three? Mnemonic device. Three is easy to remember. You get much more of that, you start going, what was that fourth one? Literally, that's the reason. The reason that there's three of this, and this this rabbi says there's three things of that, this rabbi says, well, you know, there's three pillars of that, is because it's easy, the easiest way to remember something is in threes. just happens that way, except for, for me. I can't remember anything, so I write it all down. So, but they said three things. Be measured in the legal process, raise up many students, and make a fence around the Torah. What do you think it means be measured in the legal process? What does that mean? Number one, I like that. Don't make so many laws that people can't follow them. In fact, there is another section of the Talmud where it says, maybe actually in this chapter, don't, you're forbidden, lawmakers are forbidden to make laws that are hard for people to follow. Don't be an extremist. Don't be an um, yeah. <laughs> amazing how relevant everything is. <laughs> Balance, be measured. Measured also means 
din and rachamim. Absolute justice with compassion. Be measured here refers to don't be extreme. Remember that you're talking about people's lives in every decision that you make. It's real people that come before you. That, number one, right? Number two, raise up many students. These were teachers. Rabbis means teacher. These were teachers. So throughout the, this, you will see reference to students and teachers and students and teachers and students and teachers because this is ultimately, after all, how we pass our tradition down, right? Is we get disciples. We get students. If you stay awake in the heat of this Roman, it's really going to be amazing. And then, they, they can if there's a they somewhere. If you find a they, they can probably turn it on. And then the last one uh, in Hebrew, it's Asu Siag Torah, one of my favorite lines. Make a fence around the Torah. Okay. This is an amazing idea, making a fence around the Torah. Because, let's see, what does that mean? Protecting the Torah. It is about protecting the Torah. Yeah, well, no, it, uh, it, could, it could mean that. Yeah. I think it don't get too close to the line. Exactly. It means, it means, what, what does a fence around something do? It separates. What else does it do? What else do fences do? Protects, right? A fence is a protection. You know, it, it creates borders, boundaries, protection. Who's in, who's out? You close the gates. Why do we have all these gated communities everywhere? Because it creates the illusion of protection. Right? Some of you live in gated communities. The illusion that no one's going to get to me. Right? More and more. There's a reason that uh, there's more and more gated communities all over the place of one kind or another. So, Because we have the illusion of protection. So, what would it mean to build a fence around the Torah? How might you... How might a fence somehow protect the Torah? What does that mean? Yeah. Beautiful, yes. I'll give you one example. You can think of another example. One of my favorite examples is if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat, you are forbidden to blow shofar on, at high holiday services. We do anyway, but um, <laughs> at least we used to. I don't know if we still do, but we used to blow shofar on high holidays. Um, but there's a rabbinic rule that if... if uh, <coughs> Rosh Hashanah falls in Shabbat, you don't blow the shofar. Why? Why don't you blow the shofar on Shabbat? It's actually not work. It's not considered. That would be the logical answer. It would be considered work. It's not considered work. It's not that it's forbidden because of work. Yeah, Bert. Carry it. One of them is... You're forbidden to carry certain things out in the community. So, you might, if you're the chauffeur blower, I left my chauffeur at home. Be right back. And theoretically, you could violate an actual prohibition, which is carrying certain things on Shabbat out in the public realm by doing that. That actually isn't even the reason. But it would fall into the same category 
as building a siyag, building a fence to the Torah. The is it breaking the ritual of Shabbat? Shabbat is Shabbat. Shofar is something else. Could be that. Shabbat is more important than anything else. So that would be a good principle because it is one of the rabbinic principles that Shabbat is more important than any other any other holiday. But the reason that they you're forbidden uh, literally to blow the shofar on Shabbat has nothing to do with blowing the shofar. It has to do with the fact that you are forbidden to repair anything on Shabbat. Repairing something, fixing something, is one of the absolute categories of work that you are forbidden to do on Shabbat. You can't sew something up. You can't rebuild something if it breaks. You're not allowed to repair something. You, that's an absolute violation of Shabbat. What if I'm the shofar blower? I stand in front of the congregation to blow my shofar, and I go, something wrong with my shofar. I'm going to go, let's see. Don't I have a thing? I'm going to want to repair my shofar so I can fulfill the mitzvah, bless you, of blowing the shofar on Shabbat. And so because if there's something wrong with my, this is how rabbis think, if there's something wrong with my shofar, I would be uh, inclined to fix the shofar, which would then have me violate Shabbat. So the safest way to prevent me from ever being in a position where I violate the Shabbat by fixing my shofar is to have a law that says, you don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. (laughs) That's building a fence around the Torah. There's lots of those. The Talmud is filled with those. You might say, and some people have, I would say, that the rabbis of the Talmud had very low opinions about people's ability to uh, remember things and to to um, have self-control. They had a very low opinion of people's self-control. You know, why did they say, you know, a man and a woman who were not married shouldn't be in the room together alone without someone there? So it's just like, you know, modern-day uh, right-wing Islam. You, you're not allowed to do that because they didn't trust people. You know, to not do the wrong thing. Probably rightfully so. But in any event, a lot of these things have to do with they don't trust you on your own, so we're going to give you some fences that all... But by the time you... You're you're not supposed to be on that stair, so in order for me to prevent you there, I'm going to put something here, then I'm going to put something here, and just for good luck, I'm going to put another one over here. So that if I miss this one up, i still got another one that's getting my way too. So there's lots of that. That's why the Talmud is 20 volumes. There's there's a lot of those kind of conversations. But that's what building a fence around the Torah means. It means how do we protect ourselves from violating things that we don't want to violate? How do we maintain, that's the negative way. The positive way of looking at it is how do we maintain the integrity of the tradition that's been passed down from one generation to the next? How do we maintain in some way the integrity of how what they saw as the mitzvot that God gave to the, the Israelites, the children of Israel, through Moses, and one of the ways is by creating our own protection around the possibility of transgressing some of those commandments. All that was one, one. One, two. Remember I told you we had... Uh... Okay, so Shimon HaTzadik. Now we meet the first actual live sage. Shimon HaTzadik. Tzadik is a righteous person. Simon the Just. 
If you get up and want to walk out at any time, please feel free. Don't be embarrassed about it. I'll write your name down, but don't worry about it. So, um, oh, the air conditioning is broken. That's good. See? It's a hot time in the old town tonight. Shimon HaTzadik was the high priest in the early 2nd century BCE. Uh, one of the sages who was, the rabbis claim, set the Bible, the biblical canon. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Shimon HaTzadik was among the last, this is what, this, by the way, what you have in front of you is literally the, the Talmud. It's, some of it's my translation of it, but it's literally the, this is not commentary, this is what Perkei Avot says. It says in the Talmud, Shimon HaTzadik was among the last of the great assembly, and he used to say, the world stands on three pillars. What a surprise. That's al-shlosha devarim ha'olam omed. You've heard that phrase. Al-shlosha devarim ha'olam, some of you have. Omed, which means the world stands on three pillars. They are Torah, al-ha-Torah, the al-ha'avodah, the al-gemilut chasadim, Al HaTorah, Al HaAvodah, Al Gimilut Hasadim. That's this phrase. Torah, service. Avodah is the Hebrew word for worship, service. It's the usually word term they use for worship. And Gimilut uh, Hasadim is acts of loving kindness. So Shimon Tzadik it begins the very first thing in Avot is these three pillars. What do you think of it as a list? I mean, you know, Shimon Atzik said, this is what the world stands on. The world, not like, these are three things I think you should think about, or I think you should do. It's, al-shloshad devarim ha-olam omed. The world is founded, and they literally saw this as a, as a reality. They thought the world was built and sustained by these, like three pillars, like three legs of a stool, that you needed all of them. Torah, and by Torah here, they mean not just Torah, but my other version of Torah. All of literature, including their own rules. Study. It would be the equivalent of saying the world is founded on study and personal growth and expanding your soul. Um, and divine service, Avodah, is emerged and obviously changed from one generation to the next. So keeping it real and keeping it relevant and, you know, whether it's meditation or whether it's um, whatever you're doing that connects you with something greater than yourself, that's divine service. That's Avodah. Now, whether it's physical things or whether it's contemplation, whether it's gathering together in community, <clears throat> for some, Avodah is tikkun olam work. That's their Avodah. That's their divine service. Their divine service is, you know, making dinner at Turning Point Shelter. And acts of loving kindness. <clears throat> yeah, yes. I find that the most revolutionary. Because it's not about saying something to God. It's about how we treat each other. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's, it is exactly, you know... Remember, all of this, what Perkei what the wisdom of the sages is about, is how to be the right person. How can I be the best version of me in the world? What does it mean to be the best me in the world? And it's like 
the book of Leviticus, you know, the famous middle of the very middle of the Torah is Leviticus 19, what we call the holiness code. It begins chapter 19, which is the first version of sort of pithy sayings, says, Kedoshim tiyu ki kedoshani. It starts by saying, be holy because I am holy. I meaning God, who's allegedly speaking in that. And then what tells you what holiness is. But it doesn't say, okay, the way to be holy is pick up a prayer book and, and read it. You know, go to services every Friday night or bring, or it doesn't even say in, in a Torah filled with sacrifices and offerings. You know, it's like the whole book of Leviticus, other than this section, is all about the details of every sacrifice and offering you're supposed to bring to the priest. When it says be holy, it then says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's being holy. When you see the animal of your neighbor fallen by the side of the road, go help your neighbor. Actually, it says your brother in one section and your enemy in another section. When you see your enemy's animal fallen by the side of the road, you are commanded to go help your enemy right his animal again. Revolutionary idea. What do you mean? I should be sitting there laughing and pointing and going, ha, you know, a pox on all your houses. No, that to be holy from Torah on. That's like really amazing because this is already a thousand years later. To be holy is how we treat other and interact with other human beings. That's the very nature and definition of holiness that the sages then raise to an entire, even a higher level. So the acts of loving kindness, Kamilut Chasadim, becomes one of the foundations of the world is how we treat each other. Okay. Then Antigonus of Soho received the received it. What's it from Shimon Atzadi? The teaching, the Torah, the 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 mantle of of uh, authority. In other words, this is a continuation of number one. Moses got the Torah from Sinai from God. Passed it on to Joshua, passed it on to the elders, passed it on to the prophets, passed it on to the sages, and then each sage passed it on to, the, to his student, and then his student, and that's what we're getting here. His student, then his student, then his student, and then quotes of them, of the things that they think we need in order to be bring holiness into the world. So Antigonus received it from Shimon HaTzadik, and he would say... Do not be like servants who serve the master for the sake of receiving a reward. Rather be like servants who serve only to serve, and may the awe of heaven be upon you. Okay, what's that mean? It's fairly straightforward, but what, like, what's he talking about? God doesn't take bribes. God doesn't take bribes. Ah, Yes. It's like heaven is here and now. Don't, don't, it's on one hand, you may look at it theologically in terms of, you know, don't just do something because you're going to, there'll be, you know, pie in the sky by and by, as the wobblies used to sing. Um, and the other is, it, it's its own reward. Doing righteous, being righteous, doing the right thing, you do for its own sake, not because God's going to reward you. And, that's a remarkable idea. Look, 2,000 years ago, uh, you know, there was this whole Jesus thing. Remember that whole Jesus thing that happened? And all of this sort of other uh, version of Judaism that emerged into Christianity, all about 
what's going to happen in the world to come and how do you get into the world to come and how do you get into heaven and there's a whole religion all about that you know that grew in all much bigger than ours you know there's a billion catholics out there let alone everybody else you know and it's it, when most people think about religion in fact that's what they think about most people think about some version of religion that says how do i get into heaven what's personal salvation you know what salvation mean to me? How do I, what do I have to do to, you know, have the pearly gates open and I get into whatever version of heaven it is? Get my 71, whatever. Um, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and here, early on, the Jewish sages said, don't, don't do something because you think you're buying your way into heaven or some reward. Don't be like servants. After all, they had servants. People have servants. You know, slavery was very common to this very day. You know, we got millions of slaves in the world today. It's always been slavery. Uh, and servants of all kinds. I mean, we all serve one way or another. That's my job, servant, humble servant of the people. So, you know, don't be like servants who only do what they do because they're hoping to get a reward from the master, whoever the master might be, do it for its own sake. Do it because it's the right thing to do. It's a whole different attitude about life and certainly about theology, about what, what does mitzvah mean. In the modern world, the whole Reconstructionist made some comment about Reconstruction. The whole Reconstructionist movement, in part, was a Mordecai Kaplan rejection of traditionalism, saying, and God is a commander saying that God is not a supernatural, it's an anti-supernaturalism. God is no longer, if God isn't a commander, a supernatural being looking down and making decisions or giving rewards or punishments, then why do anything? For this reason, you know, why do anything? Why do the right thing? Why not just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die? So you might as well get as much as you can, as fast as you can, you know, any way you can. Well, maybe for the next four years, but other than that. Um, you know, but that's a value. I mean, that's a certain way of seeing the world. This way of seeing the world, the Talmud's way of seeing the world, the rabbi's say, rabbinic sage's way of seeing the world, as expressed right here at the very beginning of Perkei Avot, is resist that impulse. Everybody's got that impulse. You know, how do I get... My reward. Where's, where does reward come from? It's, um, it's what in study in Hebrew that we call Torah Lishma. There's a phrase in Hebrew, Torah Lishma. Torah Lishma means study for its own sake. That is, don't study because you're going to get a reward if you study. Study for its own, study itself should be its own. Immersing yourself in sages, in Talmud, in Torah should be its own reward. It's like doing the right thing anonymously, whether you get credit for it or not. It should be its own reward. And that's that's what Antigonus is saying. Be like servants who serve to serve. Because service is its own reward. Because you feel good about who you are because you're doing the right thing. And then the little punchline is, may the awe of heaven be upon you. On the other hand, you could look at it as, on the other hand, don't forget that there's also God there. There are many synagogues that have over the over there in their sanctuary a Hebrew phrase that says "Dalifne Miata Omed." Big uh, cathedrals say that. I think maybe Wilshire, the old Wilshire 
cathedral, which means know before whom you stand. <laughs> you know, which is also, it's kind of the push and pull of all of this rabbinic literature. On the one hand, do the right thing for its own sake because it's the right thing. On the other hand, don't forget, there's something bigger than you out there. You know, Fred. Wasn't that who it was? What? Could be. Yeah, Yira's fear, awe, could be. I just never put fear down. But yeah, it could be translated the fear of heaven. You know, because there are, on the other hand, people hedge their bets. You know, you never know what's going on. You never know, is there going to be a reward? We don't know. We haven't known since. So, 1-4. Yossi ben Yoezer of Tzreda, that's a, a town, and Yossi ben Yochanan of Jerusalem received it from them. Right? Now we're starting with those couples. One is the Nasi and the other is the Vice Nasi. Yossi Ben Yoezer says, Your home should be a meeting place for scholars, meaning for sages. Sit at the dust of their feet and drink their words thirstily. You have to remember... This is the this is the value system of teachers. You should be a teacher. You should always look for teachers. You should surround yourself with teachers. But they also, not just teachers, self in a self-serving way, but this is the head of the of the Sanhedrin of the, of the rabbinic court of 71 people said. What kind of conversation do you want to have in your house? What kind of home do you want to have? How different would your home be if you filled your home with thinkers, people wrestling with important questions in life, as opposed to partiers who just want to party? What's the quality of your life? How's that going to impact the quality of your life? It's not just, I'm a teacher, so you you should hold teachers in high esteem. It's, you should take control of the environment in which you live. And make your home a place that is challenging, stimulating, inspiring, because you have the kind of conversation that you would have with people who are of this caliber, intellectually, who wrestle with these kinds of issues that they wrestled with all the time. You know. Education, education, education. Yes. You should have the Plato Society in your home every month. Yeah. Why does it say sit in the dust? Sit in the dust at their feet. Why does it say sit in the dust? Because they didn't have floors. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Huh? Two things. Number one, yes, it's physical and, and metaphoric. Sit in the dust literally meant because this is where they gathered. In I mean, picture you know um, what buildings were like. S- gather and sit, and people would sit on the floor. With teachers would teach. Everybody would sit below them. So if, if I was a teacher, you'd be all sitting down somewhere. I, and if you're sitting on the floor, you're literally sitting at the dust of their feet. And and dust is also always uh, a symbol, sort of a metaphor for humility. So surround yourself with teachers and and approach them with humility. You know, it's like who's uh, what, what's Moses's greatest quality? According to the sages, it's his humility. You know, here he was, the greatest leader of the Jewish of Jewish history, the this powerful, strong, big guy who was, you know, spoke to only guy who spoke to God face to face, who brought 
the, all the law from the Torah down and the commandments down and all that, who could have been arrogant as can be. And in fact, he's described in the Torah literally as the most humble of men. Humility is, and throughout this, you'll see, even in what I just gave you, a reference to humility over and over again. That the idea of, of sitting, in fact, there's a phrase in the Talmud here that says, um, you see how this is laid out? So with rows going up, so the Sanhedrin was this way. You know, um, the the people of the highest, uh, the sages with the highest ranking would, you would think they would hear, half the time they were, they were there. So, um, so they would say, don't elevate yourself over where you're supposed to be. Sit lower than you sit lower than you're supposed to be. Better people should say, go up, go up. Then they should say, get down, get down. It's in here somewhere. You know, because it's about how you, how you see yourself, how you act with, with humility with people. In, in, so it's, it's both of those things because that literally they sat in the dust at their feet. Um, Yeah. No, it's like you're, it's, it's the idea of, of the, the words of Torah, words of scholarship, words of Torah in general, in, 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 with the capital T, is life giving. This is the source of life itself, are words of Torah. Yes, it's, it's like the very nature of, of, to be alive, you need to have Torah. So the other one, Yossi ben Yochanan, then said, your house shouldn't just be about scholars, by the way. Your house should be wide open to everyone. Treat the poor as family and don't talk excessively with women. I could have left it out, but I put it in. This applies to one's wife and all the more to a friend's wife. What does that mean? Okay, so... Other than the sexist nature of the obvious, like pushing everybody's buttons, what else could this mean? Like, what's the context of this? Do you think, yeah. Women weren't studying Torah, so it means don't spend your time talking about things that aren't substantial. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. It was it was all it's a men's group, the Sanhedrin. There weren't any women in the Sanhedrin. It was a boys' group, you know. It was boys' night out. We'll go to the Sanhedrin and talk about Talmud, you know, and let's discuss Torah. Uh, women did women things, you know. They did all the women normal two thousand years ago. Don't forget, it's two thousand years ago. Women did all the normal women things. So it wasn't that you should. There's something wrong with women. It's following in the same line of how do you fill your life and your house with substantive conversation that what well, they considered substantive. So, and they didn't say don't talk to women. They said don't excessively talk. Don't spend all of your, what they meant was, and that was a symbol of that. You know, and we, we hear it in our modern world, years, don't spend more, too much of your time overly with, with everyday stuff, with everyday issues. Make sure you do two things. You fill your life, your, your house with substantive conversation, but it's not just about having the elite. You don't want you to be elitists either. 
So your house should be open wide to everyone. That's why very often you go to a wedding and the rabbi or whoever is officiating will make some comment about the chuppah as a symbol of a home and that it's open on all sides because your home should be open on all sides to all, you know, everybody coming. Should be, should be not closed. It's part of this. It's your home. And they specifically talk about the poor. Most people don't like open their home to the poor. Come on down, poor people. You know, it's like, ew. You know, they walk by them in the palisades and go, ew, you know, this person is dirty and whatever, go take a bath. It's the, have a sense of obligation to taking care of those who are most vulnerable in society. That's what this is saying. So, um, of course it's sexist. I mean, it's like, duh, it's sexist. Then, what's this? I love that. I'm going to tweet that tonight. No. <laughs> Only I don't tweet. So I, but if I did, I'd tweet that. What about this applies to one's wife and call the homer? It says that's all the more in what a great rabbinic, all the more so to a friend's wife. Now what are we talking about? Yes, we're getting a little bit into, uh, not social media, but, um, behavior. You know, if you're like hanging out with your friend's wife excessively, it's excessively. It's not, you shouldn't talk to your friend's wife. It's building a fence around the Torah. How do you build a fence around your own behavior? You, you, you know, you back off going out with your friend's wife all the time. You build a fence around the wife. Um, right. Actually, you build a fence around yourself. The wife can go wherever she wants. It's, it's you that you have to control. You build a fence around yourself so that you don't put yourself in situations where you're likely to do something that you're unhappy with after. Right? So, uh, one six is what I used in my bar mitzvah speech when I was bar mitzvah. Yehoshua ben Parachia and Nittai of Arbel received it from them. Yehoshua ben Parachia said, love this, um, find yourself a teacher, secure for yourself a friend, and judge everyone charitably. Literally was in my bar mitzvah speech. Um, that was, that's what it says in Hebrew. Find yourself three things. Find, there's always three things. Find yourself a teacher, get a friend, and like think about how this goes. A teacher for me, a friend out there, and then judge all people charitably. So, what's going on here? You know, find yourself a teacher. Why? What do they mean? Why is this one of the most important things? Get yourself a teacher. Not because they're teachers, but... Because otherwise you have arrogance. <laughs> you know, the arrogant person says, I don't know, I, I know everything. You know, I don't need it. The minute you say, I need a teacher, you are instantly putting yourself in a position of humility vis-a-vis somebody else. Saying there's always something I can learn and grow in life. It doesn't say, until you get to be age 12... Until you get to be the age 13, until you get to be the age 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it happens to be, it's find yourself a teacher. At every age, find yourself a teacher. Be open to that. And then, 
I'll tell you why in rabbinic life, the next phrase would logically be, get a friend. Because that's how you study. Traditional study is in pairs. You study with someone. You study two people. So that you can argue, you can be Hillel and Shammai. So you can argue with each other. So you can wrestle with ideas with someone. Otherwise you're just talking to yourself. You know? There's no, there's no light. How does light happen? You take two sticks and you rub them together. You know, you take a flint and a stone. Take a flint and a stone. That's right. I remember the cartoon. Take a flint and a stone and you make sparks. You know, and that's, that's what find your, get a teacher and find a friend. They go together because that's the encouragement of how you best learn is inter- talking to someone. That's why the best marriages and the best relationships of or whatever partnerships, professional and otherwise, are ones in which you engage with your partner. You know, you got someone who because you're, that person's in your life, you become a better you. You become, you know, sharper. You become someone you get challenged. To, to think about things that otherwise you wouldn't think about. No one, you don't just need to be self-reflective all the time. You know, I don't need to tell my, talk to myself all the time. I know what I think. You know, I need someone else to go, yeah, but, how about this? Well, how about that? Did you think about this? And then, Don of Koladam Lakaf Sachut, which literally means, um, uh, uh, Kaf in Hebrew is one of the sides of a scale. You know, like you put a scale, it says, so this rabbi is saying, judge, put everyone on the scale so that you assume the best, whatever merit would be, whatever would assume that the person has the best of intentions. We all need to be doing that this week. We all need to be start thinking that there are people out there with whom we don't agree who have the best intentions, their intentions. They think it's the best intentions. They're doing the best they can. Because it changes your attitude about life. If you assume people are doing the best they can, you know, they're not on purpose out to destroy the world or do whatever, but they're doing the best they can, even if they don't agree with you. They're doing, that's the best they can come up with to do that. And, and because attitude is everything. One of the things that you, you deduce from reading the rabbis is things that I say all the time, which is attitude's everything. You know, you, how you hold things. You can't determine the consequence, the things that, circumstances that happen in your life around you. Clearly, we can't determine the circumstances of our lives. All we can do is choose how we're going to hold those circumstances. And the rabbis of the Talmud said, do your best to judge all, all, they don't say just the ones you like. It doesn't say, remember to judge the people who agree with you. It says, you know, it says, don et kol adam, judge all people as charitably as you can do it. As if they're doing the best they can. And then Nittai of Arbel, the other part of this couple, says, this is a cute one, I like this one, keep away from a bad neighbor, don't befriend an evil person. Notice all the threes here? They're all threes. Keep away from a bad neighbor, don't befriend an evil person, and don't despair of justice. You see how we need the Talmud? We so need the Talmud. So, why that? Of all the lofty things they're saying, all of a sudden they're like, keep away from a bad neighbor. What is, why that? Don't be corrupted. Don't, yeah. Choose your friends carefully. You know, 
Choose the people you hang out with. The people you spend time with influence who you are. You know, every parent is freaking out about their kids and who their peers are and what group they're running with and all that kind of stuff all the time, right? How do I control my kids' friends? Which, of course, you can't control your kids' friends, but everybody tries. You know, you're forbidden from this and you're forbidden from that and you can't see that person. You can't see that person and that makes them want to see them more. So then they sneak out and see them, whatever. You know, you can't date that person. You can't do whatever. It never works. So you can't do whatever. So because... We are, in fact, influenced by who we hang out with, who we spend time with. So, you know, don't think you're immune. Well, I'm going to spend time with that person, even though they know that the guy steals all the time, and it's not going to affect me. Or he's, you know, lies all the time, or he does whatever. Don't befriend an evil person. Also, it's like, you know, don't think so much of yourself that you think... All that person needs is me to be in her life. If I'm in her life, she's going to become such a good person, right? It's like, you have to build a siag. You have to build a fence around yourself as well. And choose the people that you interact with uh, based upon the kind of life you want to have. And uh, Hebrew is, I love that phrase. Don't despair from... Um, well, literally, it means ultimate divine justice. What do you think they meant by that? Well, yeah, it was kind of a Jewish version of karma, that ultimately, they're really, even though it doesn't appear that things work out always, ultimately they work out. Ultimate, there's some kind of, because the rabbis, don't forget, they did believe in a kind of ultimate redemption. That, uh, you know, this is a... a when you've been battered and bruised, when you've been had your temple destroyed by the Romans, when you think you're chosen by God to be a, have a special relationship with God, and every time you turn around, someone is beating you up and sending you off into exile, you know, one generation after the next, you start to go, what's wrong with this picture? And one of the ways that you resolve the answer of what's wrong with this picture is... There's ultimate justice. It just hasn't happened yet. Uh, ultimately, things will work out. You can look at that any way you want. You can look at it in the literal sense that there's some divine justice up there that's going to, you know, there's going to be ultimate reward and punishment. Probably not going to happen. But you could look at it that way. Or you could look at it having faith in evolution and human evolution and people. That yes, there's bad people and there's the Hitlers of the world that arise. I'm sticking with that. There's Hitlers of the world that arise and horrific things happen. Like what's worse than that, you know? Unless you live in the Sudan and are going through that. Or you live in Syria right now and are going through that. Millions of millions of people displaced, right? Murdered, whatever. I mean, horrible things happen to people. Perfectly innocent people that we're now going to keep out of our country. Perfectly innocent people. Horrible things happen to them. But this says, don't despair. It says in Hebrew, don't literally, don't despair. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad at the moment. It's bad for that group. It's bad for this person. It's bad for this. But in the long run, ultimately, we believe, and Judaism has always believed, that it'll be okay. There will be redemption. We are a people 
whose entire being as a people is the story of we were slaves and we went free. That's what we say every service over and over again. We sing Micha Mocha. We talk, we were slaves in Egypt and then we went with a strong hand, outstretched arm. God freed us from that. That's our narrative. That's our story. And we're sticking to it. That's our collective story. We were slaves and we went free. And it became the story of everybody. It became the, I mean, not everybody. It became the, the Western world's storyline that, that there is redemption ultimately for free, even though there are backsliding. There is backsliding. There are times when somebody else takes takes over you, and you end up being sent off into slavery. You know, and when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, and thousands of Jews of Israelites were led off into slavery into Rome, and Titus built this big arch that you can see today in Rome. Titus' arch is there, celebrating the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction and the conquering of Israel. And uh, I remember so clearly when I was there a number of years ago, some. Israeli, I'm sure, had spray-painted on Titus's arch, Am Yisroel Chai. The people of Israel live. Thousands of years later. Titus ain't around anymore, but the Jewish people are still here. Yeah. I have a quarrel with the first two elements there. Yeah. I think that I was always ready to talk about, you know, lessons you learned when you were young. Yeah. Right. Be, uh, fervently uh, against anti-Semites and in favor of Israel. Yes. And if you're saying don't befriend evil people, and you kind of shutting off those people and basically saying uh, hell with them, as opposed to uh, let me try and show you a better way. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. Um, and um, and and just because the Talmud, someone in the Talmud says it, doesn't mean we have to all agree with it all the time too. Um, I think it's a balance. I think it's, 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 what you say is for sure true. That, I mean, I was spending a lot of time in, in juvenile hall and juvie justice things and, you know, kids are there for all kinds of reasons and have done all kinds of bad things and you either believe in that there's the possibility of chuva and redemption and, or you don't. And if everybody stayed away, that we'd just be incarcerating them all together. Right. They'd all be with you all the time. But, um, so I think that, that at the same time, this is a, um, this is a cautionary tale. This is a caution against being corrupted yourself because you hang out so much with, it's like being, going undercover. You know, if you're a, you're a uh, police and you go undercover in a, with a skinhead group and you're, or you go undercover with neo-Nazis or whatever. To, how long do you have to be there before you start, when you're acting a certain way all the time, to, to worry about your own corruption or not? I don't know. I, I don't know. All I know is that, that it's, it's a balance and we need both. We need people who, you know, the, are willing to believe in, in the redemptive ability of people. Um, I wish our, unfortunately, our whole criminal justice system is not based that way anymore. It would be nice if it was, in fact, uh, geared toward redemption and, uh, and chuva and we, that's, rather than just incarceration itself to keep people away. Um, my time is up.
Time flies when I'm having fun. Um, so, uh, because 9 o'clock is, we're supposed to end and it's 9 o'clock, look at that. Um, and mostly it was uh, giving you a sense of where this came from. Um, this is a once a month event. Hopefully some of you will come back next time, whenever it is. Do we know when it is? December something? The fifth? It's another Monday night. The first Monday in December, if you want to come. Um, the phone's turned off. And um, I'm going to do this uh, and finish this and go to chapter two. And hopefully you'll find some things that um, you can use in your own life as well. So I'm uh, officially signing off for the podcast. Should anybody be listening to this and in an environment that's not as hot as the one we're in? And, um, and I uh, encourage you all to have faith because we all need faith, and encourage you to remember, remember when we're reading this stuff, this wisdom of the sages, which is thousands of years old, when you're Jewish and you have a history that goes thousands of years, moments like this in our history is a little blip along the way, you know, and uh, we've had much worse things happen in our lives, and uh, I have faith that it'll all work out in the end, as uh, I don't despair from ultimate... Redemption. It'll just take us a while to get there. And we all have to band together and do the best we can to create the kind of society we want to create. So thank you all for coming. Thanks.